Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. Welcome. So good to have everyone here today, uh, braving the wet. Um, it, it's interesting. We did pray in the elders meeting this morning that God would wake people up out of their bed and bring them in the rain. Uh, you'd think we shouldn't have to pray that if there isn't an ark involved, right? Uh, that it should just be a normal thing that we would get out of bed and come to church. But uh, we understand that it's, it's a bit of a challenge some days. So thank you for taking time out and being part of the church family. A couple of quick announcements. As we get started, before we dive into Mark chapter 10, oh, it got bright. Um, uh, a couple of quick announcements. So card ministry. So those of you uh, who if you've ever gotten one of those birthday or anniversary cards, handmade, beautiful from the church, encourage you to, uh, if you want to be part of that ministry, join uh, Linda and others tomorrow at three in the afternoon downstairs in the women's ministry room, which is uh, there's a downstairs entrance kind of across from the office is where that room is. And you can join in in helping make an address and send those cards and just share some of the love of Jesus Christ and some of the cheer that you have already received from that ministry. We do have a men's breakfast next Saturday at 8 a.m. So encourage everybody who is a guy to come and spend about an hour and a half with us in God's word eating a great breakfast and praying for one another. So please come and join us for that time. It doesn't matter if you've never been. It doesn't matter if you feel like you're not spiritual enough or you're too spiritual. Come and join in and be part of that with us. And then uh, one big announcement I'm really excited is that on Easter Sunday, we already have uh, a scheduled uh, baptism. And so if you have been wrestling with whether or not you're ready to be baptized, and follow after your Savior in that first act of obedience, that public profession of your faith through baptism, I want to encourage you to check in with me. Uh, we have enough water to baptize everybody. Uh, I mean, like everybody. And we'll keep getting more water if we need to. Uh, and, and remember, baptism is not about the washing away of your sins. Your sins are washed away by faith through the blood of Christ, the moment you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But what baptism is, is it's actually modeled on a, a ritual bath in Judaism where you experience something that begins a new journey in your life. And the Apostle Paul describes it as an experience of being dead to your old self and the ways of sin and raised up like Christ out of the grave to a brand new life of walking with Him. And so that's the beauty of of the, the symbolism in baptism, and it's the first act of obedience for every believer. And so if you are interested in pursuing believer's baptism, I encourage you to check in with me in the emails. It includes my email address, so you can just reply to that and ask, hey, what do I have to do to be baptized, or what are the standards for baptism? And really, it is just faith in Christ and wanting to be baptized. So we have been focusing on our Savior Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And remember, it is the Gospel according to Mark. Mark didn't write his own story. It's not his own creation. Rather, it is his account of Peter's uh, recollections of Jesus' ministry. And when Mark writes this Gospel, his whole intent is to share the good news. And that good news, that announcement of life-changing truth, is that Jesus is the Christ, the King, the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. He is the Son of God. And so we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. We will get through it before the end of summer. Uh, that's my promise to you. The goal was to be on the crucifixion by the time we got to Easter, but sadly, we are not going to make it. Uh, but I think that it is worth lingering in the Gospel of Mark and not rushing through and not skipping over some of these beautiful teachings and times with Jesus, but instead to really focus in on things and get to know our Savior better. 
Because in knowing him better, we understand what he longs for from us and what he longs to see in us and, and really how he wants to lift us up out of our brokenness. You know, our worship this morning began with that quote that Shelley shared from Messy Spirituality about coming to Christ, about our spiritual life. It's not about being perfect today. In fact, it is about recognizing our need for a Savior, confessing our brokenness, and then beginning that process of walking with Him. And as we walk with Him and understand Him, we will begin to grow into His likeness and into the things that He has commanded for us and asked of us. And each of these worship songs have told us about the grace of God, about all that Jesus has done for us. And when once we have come to Jesus and we've understood our sinfulness, and we've understood our need for a Savior, then we're supposed to begin this process of discipleship, this process of learning and growing, and hearing His teaching and applying it to our life. And that's really what we're doing today in this time, is to, to see what Jesus would say to us, and then decide how we need to apply that to our life today. Last week, we ended up with Jesus' statement that salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? In other words, if someone who says they are a disciple does not look like a disciple or act like a disciple, how can they become a disciple again? You, you need to prepare yourself to be salty all the time by obedience to Christ and reflecting his character and also to be at peace with one another. And so we get that last statement, to be at peace with one another. And then it, it kind of goes straight into this teaching in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them up. Uh, I was talking, Shelly and I were talking, uh, was it late last night, about how we lose our place sometimes? Uh, I don't use a digital Bible to preach from because, you know, you, one missed scroll and you're in a different place. And that's why I like my physical Bibles. And also, you can see, this one is actually just the Gospel of Mark. And this side is the Gospel, and this side is what Michael has for notes. Now, I probably won't look at these notes while I'm preaching, but this is where much of the preaching uh, resides, is on these notes. So, just to, whether it's digital or physical, though, interact with God's Word. It is not my preaching that's going to change your life. It is not sitting in a comfy chair and drinking good coffee and having a donut that's going to revolutionize your spirituality. It's interacting with the living word of God that will make you more like Jesus. It's when you come to it expecting to hear from your Savior that you will become more like him. And so I want to encourage you to, as often as you can, interact with the living word of God. So Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12 we'll read today, whether it's in your physical Bible or following along in the Bible app where the notes for today are as well. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, when we read this passage, these 12 verses or so, you might be thinking, oh no, he's just going to like go off and this is going to be some cultural warfare sermon, isn't it? And I got to tell you, I don't think that that's what God has in store for us today. I don't think that's the heart of Christ here because Jesus was going and he was encountering people and as they had questions and as he ran into them, he was excited to teach them and share with them. 
And it was when these Pharisees, these religious elite, they come up to Jesus. They wanted to test him. They wanted to actually lay a trap for him and, and make it to where his followers would look to him and go, you hypocrite, or, or you're denying the law, or you're too strict, or some sort of argument to discount the teachings of Jesus. And so we don't want to fall prey to just ranting against culture or making things about us versus them, but what we want to understand is, what is it that we're supposed to learn from Jesus in this encounter? If we were in this crowd and we heard this teaching, what things might we be able to take home and apply to our daily life? So the Pharisees are trying to test Jesus, to trap him, and they say to him, listen, is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And guess what? We're going to get to that discussion. But first I want to point out some things that Jesus says without saying them directly. Some things that we can learn from what Jesus says here, even though he's speaking directly on divorce, he actually teaches us some things about his view of the Bible, his view of relationships, his view of sexuality that's much deeper than just these statements on divorce. So, First, Jesus affirms a number of things. If we look through this passage, we need to understand that Jesus isn't just railing on the topic of divorce. Rather, he is affirming, soundly saying, I support, and this is truth, a number of things. Number one, in verse two, he uh, excuse me, verse 2 and then verse 3, he supports Mosaic law. He supports Mosaic law. Now, you might be wondering, what is Mosaic law? Well, we can flip back, if you've got the whole Bible, to our Old Testament, and we can see in places like Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, these are the things that God spoke to his chosen people. And he said to them, this is the way you are to live life as my people. Now, thankfully, some of that old Mosaic law has been kind of renegotiated in the new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I got to tell you, I'm thankful for things like bacon on cheeseburgers. And, and if you and I were still living under the Mosaic law, as many Orthodox Jews do, especially in Israel, guess what isn't on the menu? A bacon cheeseburger. You can have a hamburger but no cheese, and by golly, no bacon at all. And that means things like no sausage, and no ham, and no pepperoni, and, and it just, you know, the, the list goes on and on, and, and I know that's petty, and so many of my examples center on food, but when you look at me, do you wonder why? Right? It's clear, I enjoy my meals. But the Mosaic Law doesn't just speak to food code. The Mosaic Law gives very specific standards when it comes to relationships, when it comes to, to how the people of God dealt with one another, the Mosaic law has some very specific standards when it comes to dealing with foreigners, when it comes to being welcoming, when it comes to being generous and giving. And Jesus, in referring back to the Mosaic law as being central to this discussion, affirms it. And so when we look at Jesus, we should not look and say, well, Jesus came and so that whole Old Testament thing doesn't apply to us anymore. What we need to understand is that we have our salvation in Christ alone and his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf as the substitute for our sins. But once we are saved through Jesus Christ, we need to understand that the ethic of the Old Testament is still in effect for us as Christians. Because Jesus himself, over and over again as he teaches in the Gospels, affirms the truthfulness of the Old Testament as being God's revealed standards for his people. And so as we hear Christian teachers in our modern culture that look and say, but that doesn't apply to us anymore. 
That's the law, and we live under grace, and now God just loves us, and we can do whatever we like. That is a lie. That is a false teaching. That is a deception that destroys lives. Because Jesus is so clear that when we walk with him, he's actually going to show us that his standards are higher than those of the Old Testament. His standards rise above the simple obey or disobey, and he actually calls us to task for the things that we feel and think. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 and 6, Jesus equates things like looking at someone with lust to adultery. He says that if you call someone a brother a fool or you hate them in your heart, it's the same as murder. Jesus takes some of the ritualism of the Old Testament, the empty words and practices, and said, if all you're doing is empty repetition, you're not in a real relationship with the Father. Jesus takes the the standards of the Old Testament, and instead of wiping them out, he fulfills them and makes it possible for all of us to live to even, even higher standards. Here, Jesus affirms the Mosaic Law. He says the Old Testament is right and true, and applies to our lives. What else does Jesus affirm? Well, you you can see, you can work ahead, right? You can be like, oh, I already know this. Michael, you can skip to the next slide. Jesus affirms the Genesis creation account. Now, the Bible is not a science textbook. We can say that without, without, without any fear or doubt. But when the Bible does teach science, it is truthful and it is right. So we wouldn't say that Genesis chapter 1 is a biology textbook, but what we would say is that Genesis chapter 1 teaches us what truthfully happened. Because every time God's word speaks, it speaks truth. And Jesus himself said that the Genesis account is real. He, he says in verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made. That's his whole point in in stating that is is there's an understanding in Jesus' worldview that the Genesis account is true. Now, you and I struggle. We live in a world that tries to tell us that it was, you know, billions of years and it's evolution. First of all, things like irreducible complexity and entropy, and you can look those up real quick if you want to Google them, they preclude the possibility of macro evolution. In other words, for things to turn from one small thing into a big thing, it's not possible by chance. So we're left with there must be a God. Now, we can have arguments about age of the earth, we can have arguments about exactly how God did things, but what we can't argue about is Genesis chapter 1 is true. Now, how it works out, I don't, I don't know that I can understand. Some of us say, six literal days, 6,000 years ago, and actually, I, I kind of fall in that camp personally. But we can't say that God used things like evolution, that's nonsense. We can't say that it's been billions and billions of years necessarily. Because Jesus here confirms what Genesis 1 says. What else does Jesus affirm? In the same verse, verse 6, He affirms human sexuality. And I don't mean the act of, I mean male and female. That we have been created with intent, male and female. That God has given to each of us, in his plans and his perfection, the standing of male and female. And this is not accidental, this is not some sort of chance, this is the plan of God for each of us. Guess what though? We still struggle with sin, don't we? We still struggle with what we are and who we are, how that works out in everyday life. But the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus was so very clear that what God's word says about us as male and female in the Old Testament was true for him. And so it must still be true for us if we claim to follow him. 
The, the third thing, fourth thing, fourth thing that Jesus affirms is Old Testament marriage ethic. Verse 7, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Anybody know where that's from? It's from Genesis. Right there in the very beginning, Jesus is quoting Genesis. And so he is looking back and saying everything that the Old Testament from the very beginning has to say about marriage is still true for us today. It was true for Jesus, and Jesus did not negate it. He said it's still true. It holds for us. And so even though it's been a couple of thousand years, it is so important for us to understand that Jesus affirms the Old Testament standards for marriage. And then finally, in verse 8, he affirms the Old Testament sexual ethic. He says, The two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. In other words, there is something unique and significant and special about human sexuality. It is not simply an act of procreation or pleasure. It is instead something that unites two people in a unique and even deeply spiritual way. And it is something to be lauded and held up as worthy and of high esteem. So Jesus, he spends time, in, 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 as we look at what he says about divorce specifically, if we understand the root of his argument is really planted in the soil of the Old Testament. And so God's standards from the day of creation have never changed. But what has changed is that you and I, as we recognize our inability to live up to those standards and come to Jesus, He cleanses us from our sin, forgives us of all unrighteousness, And then we are filled with the Spirit and finally become able to possibly, potentially, even now, begin to live up to these standards that Jesus has given us. Begin to live up to these expectations that God has for us. Not as a means of earning our salvation, but because we are saved in Jesus Christ, He makes it possible for us to begin to finally walk in obedience like we were supposed to from the beginning. So back to the topic of divorce alone. Pharisees come up, and in order to test him, they ask Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And you might read that and go, what? Where is that in the Bible? Deuteronomy Chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Here's what the Old Testament has to say. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he then finds, excuse me, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." Wow, that's a lot of ifs, isn't it? A lot of therefores and what whys and, you know, here's how this is supposed to work. And, and so there is this, this argument amongst the Pharisees about divorce. And their argument was two different camps. Some Pharisees of Jesus' day thought that divorce could only happen in the case of adultery. And so a man could give his wife a certificate of divorce for her committing adultery against him and he wanted to preserve her instead of sending her out to be stoned in the street he would quietly divorce her and send her away and then there was another group 
that said a man should be able to divorce his wife for any reason. You know, she burned dinner. Um, so, <laughs> it wasn't that funny, but yeah, I guess if you've burned dinner more than once, you're like, oh, well, I'd be done. And, you know, uh, interestingly enough, you know, today's day and age, it could be um, the, the wife divorcing the husband for burning dinner. Uh, but but the, the deal is, is they, they, they have this argument going on. Jesus, we want you to clarify this. Can, can we divorce her for adultery only, or is it only reason? Or any reason, excuse me, that we can imagine. And, and really what they were asking is, is, Jesus, we have these standards that are appropriate for our culture. What do you say? And Jesus is actually referring back to the, the Bible. He's referring back to Genesis and, and Deuteronomy. And he wants them, instead of saying, hey, uh, how do we you know, make the Bible suit what we want? He wants to draw their eyes back and say, what does God's word really say? And, and Jesus tells them, here's the whole story on divorce. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. In other words, because God knew that you were going to sin in this circumstance, he, he knew he had to lay out the what-ifs for this. Because he knew that you were selfish, because he knew that you would not be able to honor marriage as he had desired, he gave you the ability to divorce your wife. And then Jesus turns a corner in chapter 10, verse 6. And how do we know Jesus turns a corner? Well, there's a, there's a word there, but. See, there's this argument. We want to divorce our wives. Should it be for adultery only or any reason? And Jesus says, listen, the whole concept of divorce was given to you because of the hardness of your hearts. Because you're sinful, broken people, and God wanted to give you standards knowing that your brokenness would lead you down this wrong path. And he wanted to at least keep you as whole as possible. But... On the other side of this is the truth. On the other side of this is the standard that God really has for us, his people. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. So Jesus begins to turn their argument on its head and say, listen, Divorce was only allowed because you're sinful people. But God's actual standard for us is no divorce at all. That a, a man and a woman created in the image of God would come together and be united as one flesh, leaving their parents behind and living together as one. And then Jesus adds this. This isn't in scripture anywhere, but in the quote of Jesus. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Where does this union originate? Does it originate in our emotions and our choices? Does it originate in some ceremony or a ring that's just flashy enough to get your attention? No, Jesus would say that this union finds its origination point in God himself. And God himself is the one who brings two together and unites them into one. Now, when Jesus finishes speaking here, what condition or conditions does he leave the Pharisees that he's talking with as grounds for divorce? If you're reading the same Bible I'm reading... I don't see any. I, I don't see any conditions on which Jesus says it's okay. In fact, he says, it was allowed under Moses, but that was only because you are so broken and sinful that you can't even maintain the most important of human relationships. Because God's original intent in this was that a man and a woman would unite together for a lifetime, recognizing that their time together was not their choice, 
but God's choice. It was not their doing, but it was the hand of God, and it's a spiritual and physical union that is beyond compare. So Jesus does not leave grounds for divorce. And, and so a little bit later in the, in the house, Jesus is asked by his disciples again about this. And Jesus says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against his original wife. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery against her original husband. Once again, what conditions or grounds does Jesus allow for divorce? None. He doesn't open it up and say, but if she burns dinner. But if he's mean. But, but if, but if, but if, but if you're unsatisfied. But if you were married young and you've both changed. But if you've gotten older and the kids are grown up and out of the house and you just need some me time. You know what's interesting? The largest growing segment of divorces in the United States is amongst those who are older and the kids are gone and they decide they want to have some freedom and live life on their own. Jesus doesn't allow us any of that wiggle room. He doesn't allow us any of those self-centered excuses. He doesn't allow us as Christians any place to say, well, it's okay you know, you can, it'll be all right. God will work everything out. No. His answer when it comes to our marriage relationships is, it's one man, one woman, one lifetime. And that's it. That's it. Now, I, I know some of us have struggled with, with, with marriage. We, we, we're, we have been married and aren't any longer. We, we, we're in second marriages. And, and, and let me tell you that this is not a condemnation of where you have been or what has happened in your life. Instead, this is a time where all of us should begin again with a clear understanding of what marriage is. And understand that there is forgiveness for every foible and failing of the past. But now we need to move forward with such a mindset that we want to live out what Jesus is sharing with us. That we want to live out what he is commanding us as believers. Understanding that when we finally have a choice, that there really is no choice. If you're married now, what's the choice? Keep moving forward in Christ. If you long to be married the day you are married, what's the choice? Keep moving together in Christ. And pushing forward and honoring your marriage. If your marriage has crumbled, even, even in the recent past, what's your choice? When next God allows you a privilege, honor it with all that you are and tend it in a way that maybe you didn't before. Now, Jesus isn't the final word here on divorce in the sense that one of the inspired teachers and writers of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, gives us some more detail. So you can flip open your Bible over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and look with me in verses 10 through 16. Now, in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is talking about marriage relationships. He actually encourages Christians, if you can remain celibate and single, that's the best choice. And some of us who've been married a few years go, amen. Amen to that. My goodness. Oh, my goodness. If you can avoid the sin of, of, of sexuality outside of marriage and remain celibate and single, you should do that. Oh, such freedom in Christ. You, you, you get to do ministry anytime you're asked to. You don't have to worry about somebody else. And that's actually what Paul says. But once we're married, 
our spouse becomes a primary concern. And, and that's not a sin. In fact, that is a biblical standard that we, once we are married, should be giving ourselves primarily to our spouses. Scripture talks about the husband owns or is in control of the wife. The wife is in control of the husband in the sense that we owe ourselves completely to one another. So 1 Corinthians 7 Verses 10 through 16 gives us some more detail on divorce. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman who has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace." For, who, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So the Apostle Paul, understanding the teachings of Jesus, that Jesus does not give an out in marriage, speaks to the believers in Corinth who were struggling, most likely, with living as Christians in a pagan culture, and wondering how do we make these biblical standards that Jesus has given to us effective and applicable in our lives in the midst of a pagan culture. And Paul gives them some very clear teachings. Verse 10, the wife should not separate from her husband. Verse 11, a husband should not divorce his wife. Is there any equivocation there? Is there any back and forth, any discussion? No. He goes on to say that, that essentially a believer should never initiate or pursue divorce. Period. And then goes on to give us some understanding, though, is that some of us, we maybe will get saved after marriage. And be married then to an unbeliever. Or we find out thinking that we were married to someone who was a believer. We find out after years that they no longer or never did really believe. And so if we're in that kind of relationship, we should never pursue divorce from an unbeliever. But if the unbeliever chooses divorce, they are to be allowed to go in peace. Now... I know for, for some, that's really that second circumstance. You are a believer, and you did everything you could to keep your marriage. Or you were divorced before you really came to faith in Christ, and you did everything you could, even then, to keep your marriage. Understand that God is not standing over you in condemnation saying, you messed it up. But when that other person pursued divorce and left you, there is grace. And, and, and Scripture clearly says, you are not a slave to that any longer. You are released. So the truth is, though, believers should never pursue divorce. But a believer is never bound when an unbelieving spouse initiates or pursues divorce. Now, some of you might be asking, but what about a really bad marriage? And I have to tell you, there's two types of bad marriage, right? One is, I just don't like it. I just don't like it anymore. It's just not for me. And, and if you're in that kind of place where I just don't care for it anymore, it's not as fun as it used to be, he's gained 100 pounds. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, if you're in that kind of marriage where you are just dissatisfied, you know what you need to do? Suck it up, buttercup. And start trying to make your marriage worth having. 
Men, if you are no longer in love with your wife the way that you used to be, don't make a man cave and go hang out with the guys more often. Instead, figure out what you need to do to romance your wife and fall in love with her again. Ladies, if he's not the Don Juan that you married, instead he's like two or three of the Don Juans that you married now, or, or, or he's been consumed by work or growing older, and you're not as attracted to him, it's time for you to start loving him again and encourage him to be that passionate man that you fell in love with. How do you do that? By being passionate toward him and reminding him of why he loves you. Now, <laughs> I've got stories from my grandparents. My grandmother was just... Yeah, I'm not going to tell all the details, Shelly. It's okay. Um, but my grandmother was one of those, those wonderful godly women, and she was just like, I just want to keep our marriage spicy. And she would read books, and she would do things that when she told us as grandkids, even adult grandkids, were like, oh no, why would you do that? And then even, even when my grandfather was ill and on, on medications and stuff, she would tell stories about how they were frisky together. And it's just like, Grandma, no. No, stop it. But do you know what I have? Is I also have this beautiful picture of two people who had sickness and struggle and differing tastes and personalities that could have, as time passed, driven them apart. And instead, they both fought to love each other passionately and to keep their marriage. So if you're in a bad marriage and it's about preferences and it's about change, then you need to fight your behind off to make it right, to make it better. Now, there, there are limits, right? You're not going to give in. You're not going to be a slave. You're not going to be a doormat. But you do need to be the best Christian husband or wife that you can be fully alive in every gift of God. I think you know what I mean. Fully alive in every gift of God that you can be alive in in order to continue to build up and maintain your marriage. There's a second type of bad marriage, though, that we have to be honest about. And oftentimes in churches, we're not honest enough. And that is one where the spouse that you are with is abusive in any manner. And, and, and I'm not, I, I, you know, it's, it's hard. I don't want to, like, stir up feelings that we don't want to stir up. But I also don't want to candy coat life, right? Because we've, we've had to deal with, with, with church members and we've had to counsel people through marriages where it wasn't just we don't prefer each other anymore, but I'm called names and I'm, I, I cry myself to sleep every night. I'm physically abused. I'm, I'm, I'm financially abused. I am, I am kept as though I were a slave. And it becomes more difficult to apply these standards in that situation. But we as a church need to be honest that sometimes there are people in our midst that need to be directly confronted with the nature of their abusive personalities. And when they have a spouse, we need to lovingly give them an opportunity to have a safe place to be separated from their husband or wife, not with the goal of divorce, but with the goal of restoration. Now, if that separation leads the unbelieving or abusive spouse to file for divorce, so be it. The one who fled the abuse should not feel bound in such a circumstance. But we shouldn't pretend that abuse doesn't happen in the church, should we? And, and, and i, I got to tell you that, that nothing in Scripture justifies treating our spouse poorly. Nothing in Scripture. No, hey, you can't leave me because God said so. <laughs> no, I'm the man, so I'm in charge. 
No, I'm the woman, so I'm the fragile one, so you have to take care of me the way I say so. There is nothing in Scripture that justifies abuse of any kind. And I want to say today, if you are in a circumstance of abuse, know that it's safe to come to the leadership of the church and let us know. Because we want to give you a place not to, to run away from your pains and run away from your struggles, but a place of safety so that we can deal with them in strength. Will we have all the answers? No. Can we figure it all out in a week? No. Could it be a really hard, long process? Yes. But know that abuse is never acceptable. And that telling your church leadership is a safe option. We will long to see you restored. But until that day, we will try our very best to provide you a refuge so that you have space to make restoration possible. Another couple of things that what Scripture tells us is pretty clear. Number one, before you're a Christian, if you were divorced before you're a Christian, it's among that list of sins that's forgiven the day of your salvation. Right? That's the old man. That's the old person. And the truth is, is even as a Christian, if you choose divorce, there's still forgiveness. There's still redemption and restoration. But I want to tell you that when you stand before Christ, giving account for your life, and the Apostle Paul tells us that that is something that will happen for us. Jesus isn't going to be, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. This is no big deal. Instead, you will have to give an account for that choice as a Christian. Is there still forgiveness? Absolutely. What is the unforgivable sin? To reject Jesus Christ. To deny the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. You know why it's unforgivable? Because if you die living in that sin, that's the only sin where you live in it. That when you die, that's it. You're done. Why? Because you have to know Jesus Christ and accept the work of the Holy Spirit to be saved. Every other sin causes accountability issues on the day of judgment. But that's the only one that keeps you from seeing God as your Father, Christ as your Savior and brother, and eternity as your home. So divorce after salvation is forgiven, but Trust me, there will be a high level of accountability for the believer who chooses to leave their spouse in divorce. Why does any of this matter? Michael, you're just railing on things. This is just culture wars. This is just you trying to say, be good people. And I'm trying to tell you, none of us are good people, and that's why we need Jesus. And Jesus says, once you're with me, this is what I want you to shoot for. And why do I want you to shoot for this? Well, here's why. Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Here, the, the Jewish people were struggling with keeping their covenants with God, and they were struggling with keeping their marriage covenants, and they were crying and weeping and wondering why God didn't hear their prayers and why their country wasn't blessed. And here's what God says to them. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Why isn't God listening to us? Because the Lord has witnessed, uh, has witnessed excuse me, was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife, by covenant. God says, a whole country can be turned on its ear and ignored by me when they do not honor marriage. Does does that sound familiar to anyone? As we watch culture around us erode and our country experience turmoil and trials, so much of it flows from our disregard for the covenant of marriage. 1 Peter 3, verse 7, likewise, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, 
since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, if you do not honor your marriage and your wife, Scripture tells us that our prayers could go unheard. That as we ignore our brides, God may in fact ignore our requests. And so it's important for us to understand the effect on our spiritual life. Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. In other words, everyone who dishonors marriage. And when we read this verse in Hebrews 13, 4, we need to understand that every dishonoring of marriage is wrapped up in those two little statements, sexually immoral and adulterous. The words there for sexually immoral, it's one word in the Greek. It's a word that really encompasses every deviation from one man, one woman, one lifetime. That's it. That everything that is outside of one man, one woman, one lifetime will be judged by God. And the people who perpetrate it will be judged by God. So, it's important to understand how we honor marriage affects our relationship with God. How we honor our spouse affects our relationship with God. How our church values marriage affects our usefulness before God. Whether we support great marriages and encourage them, or we say, oh, it's okay. I mean, everybody gets a mulligan or two. It matters. It matters. The first way, of course, all of us need to know that we honor God is by trusting in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Understanding that we were created by God, lovingly, in His image, but with responsibilities to walk before him righteously. And Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden, they chose to rebel against God and all of us since have chosen to rebel against God and decided that our way was better than his. And in rebelling against God, Adam and Eve first and all of us since have earned death and the wrath of God. That's what we deserve. It's the price we should have to pay for our own actions. But God loved us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, fully God and fully man, never sinning himself, but he died on the cross as the sacrifice for our sin, absorbing the wrath of God, taking the punishment of death upon himself that we deserved. After his death on the cross, he was buried, but after three days, he rose again to prove he really is who he says he is and really can forgive as he says he can, and every one of us is left with a choice to repent, turn away from our own selfish ways and rebellion, and believe on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And Scripture tells us that everyone who confesses him as Lord and Savior, who believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, everyone who does that will be saved. And then as we're moving forward, we're called to honor and live the way he asks us to, and that means living a life where marriage matters. Our marriages, the marriages of, of our loved ones, marriage in general is something that matters to God, and so it should matter to us. And we have been given clear standards. As you read Jesus, do you see any murkiness when it comes to marriage? When you see what he says, do you see any, well, what about, or any, I bet we could, or, or any little escape clauses, or what ifs? Because I don't. In fact, I see Jesus raising the bar very high for his people. And we've been given clear standards. Now we also have to understand, forgiveness lies on the other side of divorce, whether it's before you were a Christian or even after you were saved. But there are varying levels of accountability and we should be afraid of dishonoring God when we are a believer. 
And because we are afraid of dishonoring him and thumbing our nose at him, we should be intent on honoring marriage as he's called us to. So, what does it mean to live in Christ? First of all, it's to understand a number of things. Jesus affirms the Old Testament. When you read Jesus, you should not be reading some soft little dude who says, it's okay, I love everybody, do whatever you want. Instead, you need to understand he is the son of God. He is without sin himself. And he says everything that God has ever said prior to my arrival is still true. And it still applies today. So understand that the Old Testament is true because of what Jesus has taught us. Secondly, maintain marriage. If you are married, fight for it. If you want to be married, prepare yourself for it and fight for it. If you are... (laughs) struggling today ask for help if you are being abused you're in a situation where you feel trapped ask your church family for a refuge and accountability to help restore things everybody here should be doing something important you should be encouraging people who are married encouraging them now, I, I don't, I don't want to play games, right? But when guys get together, they talk trash. When ladies get together, they talk trash. Brothers and sisters, when we get together with one another, we should feel free to vent our frustrations and pray for one another, but no one should ever encourage another believer to end their marriage. Period according to what Jesus has taught us? Should we give each other every resource possible to make marriage better? You betcha. And if that means staying in my basement, it's a nice basement, by the way. Staying in my basement, we kick you out, Will. For a while, so that you have room to make things better, my basement's open. And I know others of you have even better spaces than me. If it means marriage classes, ask. If it means watching your children for a night so you can have the first date in ages. Let us know so we can help. And then above all, we should be a people that honors marriage. Because when we honor marriage, we honor the God who created it. We honor the Savior who sanctified it. And we honor the husband or wife that we've been given as a blessing that we are one flesh so today no the Old Testament is true and marriage is worth fighting for maintaining and encouraging let's pray together Father God we thank you for today we thank you for your love and the life that you've given to us I know that we are all so many of us in different places in life and I know that there's some hurts that are fresh and some that are older. I know that there are some hopes that have been dashed and some that are still alive and well. So, Father, we pray today for all of us in our varying relationship with the marriage covenant that you would help us first to have a right perspective of it, second, to encourage marriage rightly lived, third of all, to do our very best in our interactions to honor marriage and who we are. Whether it's something we pursue, something we maintain, or something we simply honor from a distance, may we lift up marriage and treat it with the same value that you've done for us, Lord Jesus. Thank you for giving us such clear teaching. There is no gray Help us to stop making excuses, trying to find loopholes like the Pharisees did. Instead, may we live your word as clearly as you taught it. In your name we pray this morning, we worship, and we find both encouragement
heads have any questions or needs that are specifically related to today's message, please be sure to check in with me to let me know. I can handle even a mean email if that's what you want to do. So um, looking forward to opportunities throughout the week to spend time in God's Word with you. And then next Sunday, Jesus is going to tell us about how difficult it is for rich people to be saved. And uh, you might wonder if that applies to you. And I'll tell you today, it does. So I'm looking forward to next week. I hope you look forward with me to the words of Christ as he teaches and challenges us. Of course, Monday night study tomorrow night. Uh, card ministry tomorrow at 3. Uh, women's ministry is Wednesday. Youth ministry is Thursday. Don't miss opportunities to grow together in fellowship. May the Lord bless and keep you. May his face shine down upon you. May your marriages be honoring to God. And may the hurts of the past be healed as you are restored and walk with Christ. In his name, amen. God bless.